Hello and welcome to another episode of the Pixel Drone Show, the podcast where we talk to industry professionals about how they use drones in their space. Your hosts for today are Kara Murphy, Greg Reverdio, and myself. Hi, Gastelow. If you're new to the show, please be sure to subscribe and we have an episode, a new episode for you every Tuesday. Now for today's show, we have John McLean from New York Drone Survey uh, as our guest and John McLean is also known as Johnny Danger. And if you look in his background, you see some of the kayaks. Uh, that has a lot to do with uh, with his nickname, but we'll get to that uh, a little later as well. Uh, John is a licensed land surveyor who started using drones a couple of years ago. And we're going to talk about how he uses drones in his work. He works together with uh, Steve Moncrief. They are operating in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and here in New York, based out of the Adirondacks, uh, which is in upstate New York. Um, and about two years ago, John was asked to make a 3D model of the Croton Dam here in Croton on the Hudson in New York, uh, in Westchester County. And we're going to talk about that as well. It was a massive project. I think it was like about 300 gigabytes worth of aerial images. So that's something we definitely want to talk about uh, as to how we got the project and what was involved. Uh, but first, welcome to the show, John. Hi, thank you. Yeah. Um, can we start at the beginning? Can you tell us how you got into flying drones and how you then started using drones in a, in a professional manner? Well, it started, I think, back when I was working in Albany, uh, not far away from where Angad Singh used to be in Troy. Uh, I was working with a company flying remote control airplanes that were park flyers. They were little electric flyers. And I started putting a you know, one or two megapixel camera on it, a little sensor, and a servo with a rubber band and a pencil <laughs> to actuate the, the electronics on the camera to get it to work. And it was flying overhead, and it was kind of more of a fun thing to do, and I was bringing it into the office and using it when we were mapping some of the surveys that we were doing. And my boss liked it. He, he saw a lot of potential, and that was back in, like, 2005. <laughs> Uh, oh, and then it started to grow. Uh, quadcopters became more available, and photogrammetry became something that was open source that I was looking into when I was getting laid off in the wintertime. Because I live in the mountains, and we don't survey when we have four or five feet of snow on the ground. So it gave me an opportunity to, to explore some technologies that uh, were new. And uh, now we're in this paradigm shift with, with drones and using this technology, photogrammetry, it's amazing. Uh, but what I was doing using open source in 2009 and 2010, uh, building upon that more and more, and then companies, like there's a company that uh, came out of Israel, Datamate, uh, they were the first so um, photogrammetry software that we purchased. I uh, mm -hmm. paid $7,000 for that license. And it wasn't quite there, that was in 2014. Um, in 2015, we started seeing more and more with the Phantom 4 um, platform and what people were starting to do at that point, I think, with Pix4D. Uh, now that's what I'm using is Pix4D. So, and yeah, it's come a long ways. Started so out just with RC aircraft, electric park flyers that could fly for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And um, yeah. I have to thank uh, an old friend of mine, Jeff Smith, and I crashed my one of my planes into his uh, Jeep one time, and he yelled at me, but we were doing a map of a project. He's like, you're playing with that toy, and you just dented my, my truck. <laughs> so uh, now everything's a lot safer. <laughs> so, Johnny, what was the first professional photogrammetry project that you did? 
The first one that I officially did that I profited from was probably in 2017 or 2018. I had been using them at that point more just testing them uh, and seeing what we could do. Uh, I had gotten my, was doing the 333 exemption and then went for the part 107. I had some friends that were part 107 licensed pilots as well. Uh, and we were still developing and seeing what we could do with, with uh, photogrammetry. And because a lot of surveyors at that time didn't believe in this technology that we could get down to survey grade accuracies. Mm -hmm. And my results were concluding that we, I was able to do that consistently. It was all on the methodology and then I was just still exploring it. So I was using um, Pix4D to create like an orthorectified image. So I could then take some of the planimetric data, such as sidewalks and um, edge of pavement, parking stripes, and, and some of these locations that weren't really, I didn't need to be super accurate with my um, survey grade data because it wasn't relative to the boundary. So I was just showing it as a nice pretty picture. And that was kind of game-changing at that point in time. That's around the time that I think I met Haya down at the, you were there at the NTSB yeah. um, accident scene reconstruction. And there was only one other surveyor, it's Jason Daniello and myself. And both of us, I think, we, we were on something. We knew that if we were training with the NTSB, which was using this software in the same drones as us, uh, that that was going to give us some insight in what they were doing. So they were doing kind of micro scale projects typically, unless they're doing, you know, a, a helicopter or an airplane crash. Sometimes they're doing smaller investigation sites, um, accident scene reconstruction, and they're they're getting down to pretty tight measurements and standards, but it's still a model. And to take that to where I'm at, I had to implement my survey methodologies and understanding good trigonometry and good, um, you know, angles and whatnot allowed me to take what I was doing to a whole nother level. And at the same time, I was, um, a, a, you know, member of Drone U and learning from all this group that was, we were all developing and learning together as a group and sharing what we, what worked and what failed. And, uh, a lot of times it's trial and error and it, it, it took a long time to get where I'm at. Uh, but now I'm, I'm confident that we can repeat this over and over and over and over again. And that's what it's all about. So I remember what, when GPS became more of a uh, standard tool in the surveyor trade that we sometimes would go out and constantly recheck everything. We had to do all these checks, constant checks over and over and over. And now if you have survey grade GPS, you're not always checking things as much as you used to. Uh, you know, and you can check it when we're going from one end to the other. We have ways of checking that. Sometimes we know where we're starting at and we know where we're going to end and we're just hitting points in between. As long as things work out, we're good to go. But the old days, you set up GPS and you, you, you were then running conventional right behind it. And a lot of times now, surveyors can get away with running survey-grade GPS, especially with the new R12s from Trimble and the uh, Carlson BRX-7 GPS units. These things are amazing with how accurate they work when you set up a base on site and you're not getting that triangulation or correction from you know um, 10 miles away. 
or 20 miles away. They, the vectors on those are not good resolution. So when you have an on-site correction that's you know relatively close to where you're at, that's going to tighten up things. So it allows you to get two or three uh, hundredths of a foot. That's you know two or three eighths of an inch in horizontal accuracy, and not far from that in vertical when you're doing a base rover. And then that really tightens things up when you're bringing that into a program such as PIX4D. I can see what data is good and what data is bad. So if my GPS or my field guide gives me data and there's some maybe a little bit of error in that particular point for whatever reason, maybe there was some trees there that were giving some bad resolution. If we were only relying on GPS, I can see that error when I'm opening it up in PIX4D. I get that ortho orthogonal um, error. It's a little error egg. And I'm trying to shrink that down and not get it to skew in one direction or another, uh, which is good methodologies in photogrammetry. And once I get that really down infinitely small, then I can trust that that's a really accurate point. So, you know, we're going then out and checking, throwing out 50 or 60 or 100 control points, not control points, checkpoints on top of our control points. So I can select and choose which control points I want to use from my field guides uh, or myself. And then I have a whole bunch of data to compare and make sure that what's coming out of my photogrammetry is, is genuinely true and accurate. So I have a follow-up actually. Listening to you talking about all of, of this, did you have a background in uh, surveying before you get into the drone thing? So is this something that you learn on the yeah, so. I went to college to become a land surveyor. Um, and I'm actually a professor at Paul Smith College where I went, uh, teaching land surveying right now, currently. Um, so I got a degree in land surveying technology, and that was in 2002. And so I've been working as a surveyor ever since. It's now 2021. And I worked a little bit uh, prior to going to college as, as a surveyor as well. So yeah, I did have a background in this. and, and at college I took photogrammetry and the old methodologies of photogrammetry are not it wasn't done digitally like it is now now it's done with algorithms and computer programs that just are doing billions and billions and billions of, of calculations and cross-matching pixels to pixels it's amazing mm -hmm. what it does now but I learned the old format uh, back when I went to college at Paul Smith uh, so I have a good foundation in it and then I built upon it when I went to the state surveyors conferences. They used to laugh at me, uh, call me the drone guy, because uh, it's all I wanted to talk about and, and say, you guys need to be staying with this and follow it and be on top of it, because if not, we're going to get replaced like GIS. It's a, its own entity. When I went to college, they were teaching GIS to surveyors and saying, this is where it's going to be. We're all going to have to know how to do this. And now it's its own you know, now surveyors have to use GPS or GIS as well, but it's its, its own branch. Um, and they, those guys are specialists. They are GIS specialists. Wow. So I kept saying to all the surveyors at the state conference, we need to follow this and, and stay on top of it. Use it. Learn it. Get a license. Get your pilot's license. Uh, learn the photogrammetry programs. There's plenty of them out there. Uh, PIX4D isn't the only one. Um, there's others and once you learn how to use it you can start implementing it into your um, tools that you have so uh, it's not going to replace 
a field surveyor. We still have to put boots on the ground. We still have to go out and find and recover monuments. Um, but we have tricks to, to find those in the photographs. Uh, that was another thing. How, they kept saying, how can you see it? Well, they keep thinking that we're taking pictures directly overhead, which is nadir, you know, straight overhead 90 degrees. And we do that. But we also take them at 60, 70, 80 degrees. So we're getting the, the sides of buildings. We can see down underneath trees. I can see the base of a tree. I can give you the DBH of a tree. I can sometimes tell you, and I'm not even an expert, but I can sometimes tell you the tree, uh, what it is, and you know, we can give you the crown height and how many potential board feet. So for you know forestry applications, uh, it, it's practical. Uh, so it's pretty neat. We're we're starting to experiment in more uh, ways that we can profit from it and and share it with our clients. So mm -hmm. because we live here in upstate New York, where we do have a lot of these resources, and some of the projects that we're doing are for timber harvesting. So that's a potential um, thing that we were looking at. Hey, you know, uh, we can tell you how many potential trees there are by this um, densification. We can see the trees there. And we're assuming based upon what we're seeing that they're all this type of maple tree and that they're about this age and height. And, you know, maybe that's a good idea to go harvest that. So um, really a, a new way for us to, to supply some other information for our clients. I'm, I'm glad we're having you on the show, John, because you've been in land surveying for so long and also been involved with, uh, with flying drones for such a long time. Uh, so you've seen things evolve and you're able to compare. Can you, can you briefly tell us, like, what are the main benefits that, that drones bring to your uh, line of work? The, the number one thing is the turnaround in time. Um, it, you know, it, it's taken me a long time to get here. But now that I'm here, I realize how quickly I can gather data. And that mm -hmm. gathering the data is really key in me being profitable. Uh, and it, the turnaround time. So if I can tell a client conventionally, that was going to take me four to six weeks to do, and we can turn that around in one or two weeks. That's amazing. So in the amount of profits and, and time savings, especially this time of year, we're in upstate New York where, you know, we're in a time crunch, the snow's coming and that hinders a lot of construction projects. So everybody right now is, I have to shut my phone off today. But everyone's calling like crazy because they all want it done yesterday before the, the snow flies. So this gives us an opportunity to provide that to them. And we're a small firm. So we can compete with these larger businesses in a way that is unfathomable to them. Um, a lot of them don't even know what we're able to do. And that's, that's good for me. Uh, it's only a matter of time, especially if they're going to watch this podcast. Um, it, or if they come to some of my classes that we've been, I've been doing here or there. Um, they're going to learn that this is game changing. It's, it's the paradigm shift is over. We're already past that. If you're not on board at this point, you're going to get left behind and you're going to be playing catch up for a long time. And it's going to be difficult. It's not impossible, but it's going to be difficult to catch up to somebody like myself. Um, and I'm not giving this information away. I, I, you know, I keep a lot of it in my head because I'm afraid to give it away. And this is what was nice about going to the NTSB was being able to uh, communicate with others that were doing uh, almost the exact same thing as me, but they weren't surveyors. So if I said something, it wasn't going to uh, take anything out of my potential revenue. Um, and then Jason Daniello, who was there, 
the other license surveyor from Florida, he's done really well with it as well. Um, you know, I haven't kept in contact with him in the last year, but we used to keep in touch every now and then and message each other and, and just see and, and see what was up and see if there was any way that if I had an issue, I'd ask him, hey, have you had this problem? Can you help me out? And vice versa. There was a few times and there's some others in the in the drone new community that I we played off each other. And it was really it was an exciting experience because once we got I got to that point where now I'm producing uh, things, I'm, I'm too busy to do anything else. Um, it's overwhelming. And, you know, two, two or three years ago, there was a point in time where I wasn't making it much money or hardly any money at all using drones and uh i had spent a lot of time and money and effort on it and those around me were seeing it and saying you know these things are toys are you really going to do anything with it now they all know it's uh, we're doing something with it and we've made it so we're excited about it and we're excited about the future um so question for you do you think drones replace traditional land surveying equipment no, my opinion of that is not. Um, it's another tool. You need to learn mm -hmm. how to use it. Uh, it's not going to work everywhere. Uh, yeah. there, there's many restrictions. If you can't see because of the photo, because of something blocking it, such as trees or structures, or for, for whatever reason, you're not going to be able to use photogrammetry. Uh, laser scanning penetrates, but it's only so much. So you know, we can throw a laser scanner on a drone and, and, and do it that way. We've been using more recently, you know, I know it's this isn't with drones, but we've been using like the iPad, which has got a laser scanner in it, and then using Pix40 Catch. Um, I have a little, uh, it's a little tiny puck that I can put on a drone, and it can then transmit back to my um, computer. And that's got, I think about, it's not very good, it's Wi-Fi range. So... I'd have to say really close to that, but I could fly that, and that's got a little um, Intel uh, 515 LiDAR sensor in it. So that's got a range of about 30 meters, or excuse me, 30 feet, 10 meters. Um, so again, it's not practical for flying really big sites, but if I need the data underneath something, I can go in and get it that way. So it's never gonna replace conventional. We are constantly going out and doing these little supplemental fill-ins. If we're doing a huge topographical survey and it's tree covered, we're going to go out there and have to shoot in these areas underneath the trees um, or, and or verify because a lot of times I can get that data. Um, if, you, if you see on the, on the um, drone data that I have, I, I can see right down to the ground. And depending on the time of year, I might be able to go all the way to the ground. Uh, and just see the tr the tree and the branches and the, all the leaves on the ground. Um, so, so, so in this case, um, you know, you're talking about the the difference between the two. For people that are maybe already doing surveying and that are looking to add a drone into their toolbox, what makes a, drone, a good drone for photogrammetry? And it doesn't have to be a brand. Maybe some attributes that you're looking for in a drone. Yeah. Well, you want, a, you want a drone that's going to have a really good uh, camera sensor. Uh, you don't want a, a cheap toy drone. Uh, you're probably going to spend $1,500 or more. Uh, there's plenty of brands out there. I mean, I can name them. The biggest name is going to be one of the number ones. Um, and th that's for obvious reasons. That particular drone has got a, a global shutter, which when it's taking the pictures, it takes them instantaneously. 
It's not taking it pixel and reading it from one side and then going. So, and that's the P4P, right? Yeah, Phantom 4 Pro, exactly. Yep. Um, that is the the gold gold standard, I think, for for most uh, photogrammetry surveyors um, because it has that global shutter. And it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's my money maker. I have one right here. So yeah, this thing is just great because of the. It's got that great sensor, um, and it, it consistently works well. Uh, I'm running third-party Pix4D on the Phantom 4 Pro version, too. Uh, I made the mistake back in originally. I made the mistake about the version to this with the included screen. It's no and you good can't install camera. anything on there. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I was there at that uh, training thing at NTSB trying to get anybody with, like, there was like 30 people there with drones and I was like, somebody here is going to be able to help me get this hack it, you know, with drone you here. And we were unable to, to do it. So I had to go out. We, I replaced it. I bought more, but since then I've, I've got like, what do we have? Four Phantom four pros. So, um, yeah, they're, they're a good, that's a great tool to have. Awesome. Um, so, so what about LiDAR? You know, we, we hear the term LiDAR a lot. A lot of people are trying to, starting to buy these machines. How does that compare to, and how does maybe that supplement the work that you do? So the LiDAR is basically, it's emitting its own light. Um, so it's emitting a laser. The, the photogrammetry is using sunlight or ambient light. Um, and it's doing the exact same thing. So photogrammetry at this point, Using software such as Bentley's uh, Reality Capture, uh, Pix4D, any one of these drone deploy, it's it's creating a 3D point cloud that is very similar to what is created from a 3D scanner. So, uh, and the, the great thing about it is it's colored to RGB because it's from an RGB sensor. So it's a red, green, blue sensor. It's mm -hmm. seeing what we see, the colors that we see. A uh, typical laser scanner that came out 10, 15, 20 years ago for surveying was not color. That just created points, and you could change the color to whatever you wanted, white, blue, green, but they were all the same color. But what you could do is it was really dense points, so you could turn and rotate. If you had a, a building corner or whatever, you can clearly see that that was a building corner. Uh, but you still had to interpret that data. Now with point cloud data and being colored, it's like looking at a 3D uh, model of it. And you could change those point uh, points a little bit bigger, make the pixels larger um, to fake it out if you don't have it. Like, that's how we do it. When we're doing our, a model like we did Crow and Reservoir, every time we flew a mission, we downloaded the data, put it into my Alienware computer, and did a quick rapid process on site of that, that, mo that mission. And that just made sure that everything looked good in there. And then we built that upon the next one. I did 37 missions on that project. Uh, and we flew them all independently with two different drones. Um, and then we, I merged them into one final project. So, um, which is also a way that I, I got around the 5,000 limited pictures that I'm allowed to use uh, without paying additional money. I have a perpetual license with Pix4D. So, I own the software, and I, if I want to use more than five thousand photographs, I have to pay to you to unlock that and and allow that. Or if I want to use picture pictures that are larger than I think fifty, is it fifty megapixels? I don't know. I, I'm usually using twenty or twenty four megapixel pictures. Um, 
So, but yeah, that, that allowed me to bring 37 projects and then merge them into one. And then it was a whole entire dam. Uh, so it, it, it was, it's pretty amazing what, what you can do with it. So LiDAR allows you to, to get real uh, close and have a very good sense of accuracy in your models. Uh, if you use regular photogrammetry, how, how do you make sure that your models are accurate as well? Because I know you factor in like weather conditions, uh, the, look, uh, the position of the sun. Uh, and can you also talk about how RTK might help you to, to get to yeah. much more accurate? So I'm, I'm one of the ones that has been against the RTK um, Phantom 4. Uh, since the get-go, there was constant issues with the base and the rover uh, connections. Uh, I tested it. Uh, I wasn't that impressed. It was coming out with two-tenths accuracy for the RTK drone, um, which was relative, which is great for most applications. I guess if I was going to be using it for stockpiles and I didn't need to set ground control, but I own a survey grade GPS. I'm there flying the drone. It only takes me, what? an hour to fly 30, 40 acres at 100 feet in elevation with a double grid mission. And that's, uh, you know, that's sufficient for most things. I do a lot of redundancy. But the, the reality is that the laser LiDAR system, it probably is going to have a more expensive drone. Um, and it's going to have, like you said, probably RTK GPS in that system as well. And what that does is the same exact thing it's going to give you that relative accuracy of two tenths. Um, you still need to set control out. If there's a little known secret with, when you're using LiDAR scanners that if you are allowing the, the program that takes that LiDAR data and puts it all together, and you're doing terrestrial LiDAR scanning, so you set up over one point, and then you move the LiDAR scanner to another point, and you move it to another point, you're supposed to set out uh, some control points. And you're supposed to use conventional methods, uh, survey methods, to locate those so you have them down to survey, survey grade accuracies. If not, you're allowing the program to say, all right, well, this corner, of this hard corner is this hard corner from this angle and from this angle. So it's doing its own calculations and stitching that all together. If you're not giving outside parameters and controlling that, that's subject to what we know as drifting. So... Um, Case in point, Trope Reservoir, it, with the laser scan data, without uh, putting in control and, and running a network for that laser scanner when they did terrestrial, they would have a, basically a curve in the face of the dam. And we, can, we know it's not. It's straight as an arrow. So it was poured on a cable, and you could stand on that dam and look right straight down, and, and it was like amazing. It was straight as an arrow. I think you can, you've seen that, I'm sure, hiking around there, high, uh, how, how straight the face of that dam is. Well, if they didn't put in control in that LiDAR scan data that they did terrestrial, what would happen is as they went that half mile, that 2,800 feet, they would have a little bit of a curvature. Um, and they would never know that that what it was caused by. Um, so, yeah, you have, to, you have to do the same methodology. So no matter what I'm using, if I were to use an RTK drone, it's only giving me two tenths accuracy, and that's not good enough for surveying. Um, so I'm going to go out and do ground control points. So the argument is, well, some people say PIX 4D runs quicker if you're using the RTK drone. Well, to me, it's not worth the hassle. Uh, I don't think it runs any slower or faster, in my opinion. 
a lot of times when we're doing these projects, I'm processing when I'm driving back from the site. So the computer's running in the back of my van. Um, I call it my little mobile command center, but I have it all set up and we just run the whole process, the whole entire thing. And depending on what level I need, it depends on what, you know, what parameters I'm going to set to have it processed. So, but like I said, I'm doing rapid on site. Generally speaking, it takes 20 minutes, half hour to just see, hey, did that data come out good? Is there something wrong? If it's good, if it's good with the rapid, when I go do a full 3D model resolution, full resolution, things going to be insane. Um, I'm going to have a lot of data. And then when I know I'm doing a lot of overlapping, that that's an issue if you have bright, sunny days. You need to pick your days to fly for photogrammetry. You know, a nice cloudy day where the sunlight isn't changing a lot and you can get everything looks the same. The colors don't change a lot. Um, that makes the photogrammetry work really well. Uh, and if you're flying them all in relatively same, same amount of time, all the GPS coordinates uh, will align up properly and, and the elevations align. So that's another thing. If you're using not an RTK drone, that could be an issue. That if you fly it today versus fly it tomorrow, the elevations could be off 100 feet in that non-RTK drone. So the Phantom 4 Pro elevations are awful. Horizontally, it's pretty darn good. Within like 10 feet of what a survey grade GPS is usually. Um, because you don't have any interference. You've got that thing up above the trees. So um, I see a lot of real estate agents using drone shots with lines drawn to show the property. Is that okay? And are real estate agents allowed to do that? That's a huge issue state to state. In New York State, that falls in the gray area and it's technically not legal to do. Uh, I know states such as North Carolina better not do that there. Uh, but New York State, it's frowned upon. I have a friend of mine uh, who asked me that question recently. And I, I explained to him that that's a liability issue for yourself if, uh, and, and the person who is supplying that. So if you're giving that to a real estate agent, there's a liability associated with that, that the person buying that property interprets that as the boundary lines or, hey, I owned over to there based upon this photograph and I paid $500,000 for it. They have an attorney. They're going to come after you, I'm sure, if that's erroneous. Um, a lot of times that's based upon the real property tax map data. And that is what is really throwing everyone off. That information is only for tax assessment. And they use that to kind of get a general idea. Um, but it's not truly accurate. We just had a project in um, here in upstate New York where... The real property GIS guy contacted me and he's like, we have an overlap out here. Um, it was like 300 feet. And I panicked like, oh my goodness, we just did a subdivision that I've projected this boundary line into the neighbors by 300 feet. A whole lot I've created, which now has been sold, um, might be on someone else's land. So I just created a land a lot that doesn't really exist. I might be buying that. Um, turns out, fortunately for me, it was that I had made a mistake. It was the real property information was erroneous. Um, and until I was able to look at it and spend some time and a lot of effort on my part, I was able to figure out what had happened and how they made their mapping mistake. 
but that's what people that's they're out hunting in that area it's all along state land um and people hunt that and the boundary lines are off by 300 feet so if you're using your cell phone out there using a cell phone hunting app um you could be potentially hunting on someone's land when you thought you were on state land or or somewhere else uh it was it was pretty crazy and i see that pretty regularly um people assume that the the tax map information is correct but if you look at that really close township by township and closer at parcel by parcel you'll see the boundary lines going through houses um and mm -hmm. they're just they're approximations they're for tax assessment and for the county to levy taxes mm -hmm. so they're not uh, they're not always that accurate i kind of want to go back to uh, to the project you did uh, almost two years ago to croton dam i mean i know i believe you did that for <laughs> for the new york state can you tell us what was involved in, in order to get that project and, and what it's entailed? And then uh, as well, um, what the model looked like and how big, how many photos, just some details yeah. about, uh, about that. So, so initially we, we went round and round. Um, we're, we were too small to provide um, them with the full contract. Uh, mm -hmm. We partnered up with another firm out in New York City and New Jersey. Um, that's rather big and they were partnered up with another company out of New York as well. Uh, and between all three of us, we provided conventional photogrammetry and um, the laser scan data. Initially, they weren't sold on photogrammetry. They were, they, they'd done enough research on it to see that many other people across the country had had many errors. So we needed to provide them with some sort of information so that they can check and verify um coincidence was that one of the companies we were working with was who was checking and verifying our stuff so we gave them our 3d point cloud and we were able to give them data and say hey these are our control points and these are our hard points that once they got our survey file our our, our point cloud out of pix4d that's the same as a, a laser scan file it's an lsz file and I had geo-rectified and, and uh, made that to survey grade by using our ground control points. Um, and I had tr truthed it to the fact that I knew I had a relative accuracy of about two hundredths horizontally and less than five hundredths vertically, the whole entire site. Um, so we set out, I think, I think we did 60 control points on this site. Um, and I probably, we were there for almost a week. Uh, we had many issues with it. Hi, was there. We had a we had a drone malfunction. Um, we had to go recover that. Uh, we had to have a tree expert, my brother, come and climb a tree and get the get the drone. Um, we won't discuss that anymore. There's an article if you want to read about that. Um, we had a, a set of peregrine falcons. Actually, there was three of them that initially came out of nowhere. We we. That was another issue about this project. So I should start break from the ground one, <laughs> ground zero, is that this project was in a, the nesting area for bald eagles. Uh, and it was known that that was a huge issue and concern. So me flying the drones was a big, big deal. And I'm well aware of the fact that bald eagles will go after a drone. And in New York State, if you disturb a nesting bald eagle, it's a million dollar fine. And New York State had two, not one, but two bird experts on site watching for bald eagles. And um, at one point, 
we didn't have any bald eagles to ever come around us. But at one point, someone walked by and said to the bird expert, hey, there's a nesting pair of peregrine falcons that hang out underneath that bridge. I'm surprised you guys are uh, flying the drones out here. And the guy, the bird expert kind of laughs. And he's like, oh, there's no, he's just, okay. And then he messages me and he comes over and lets me know um, that, hey, there might be some peregrine falcons around, but I don't think so. They, they tend to be upstream about eight or nine miles. We know where they're at, but I'm going to call one of our other experts that knows peregrines. And sure enough, about an hour and a half later, this guy was on the other side of the dam and he's now trying to call my cell phone, which is connected to PIX40 on my drone and it's on airplane mode, so he can't call me. And he's panicking, whistling and trying to drive across the Croton Reservoir Dam to get over to me to tell me to land my drone because Peregrine Falcon, not one, but two of them flew right overhead. And uh, they when they flew right overhead, they're about, I'd say by my guesstimates, 1,700 feet up, they dive bombed on top of us. And they landed in a tree right next to about 75 feet from where I was standing on the bridge of the reservoir. Uh, it was an amazing experience and a little scary, but I flipped my both. I had two Phantom 4 Pros in the air at the same time, uh, one with my other pilot, and he was standing right there next to me, and I flipped my drone into attitude mode and flew it right out over the reservoir about three feet and about a half mile away. So it was just three feet over the water thinking, if a peregrine falcon is going to hit my drone, it's not going to want to right there in case it misses my drone. It's going to go in the water. And I, and then handed him the remote control, and I did the exact same thing with his drone. <laughs> and we got it to a safe spot, and then the bird expert shows up in a panic. Where, where are the drones? Where are the drones? He's looking everywhere, and we're like, like a half mile that way, <laughs> three feet over the water just hovering right now. I said, till I know it's safe to come back, I'm not bringing those drones back. So... Um, but we talked for a little bit and there was the other expert there. He's on his phone looking up peregrine falcons and drones, you know, trying to find out if there had been anything. I kept saying, I don't think that they'll attack my drone. I'm pretty certain, but I don't want to take the risk. And I don't know what the fine is for a peregrine falcon attacking my drone with you guys on site. I don't want to take the risk. So it shut us down for about an hour. I think there was 26 people on site that day. Every single person was shut down. So... If you want to question how much it could cost to have a bird come on site while you're doing a commercial operation with a drone, imagine that some of those people were three or $400 or more an hour. Some of these were head engineers for the city of New York. The whole entire site shut right down. <laughs> they sat right there and they're like, what are we going to do? I flew the drones back. We landed them um, after about an hour or so and talked with the bird expert. Uh, believe it or not, here's what I ended up doing. We flew the drone underneath the bridge really slowly and casually watching the, the one drone in the tree. There was another one underneath the bridge and then we were looking uh, at the whole entire time to see if we could find a nest um, because that would have shut that site down. That project would have got shut down. Um, and that's what we were told. So it was, a, it was an awesome experience, but it was also a little bit nerve wracking. And then the next day, the exact same thing happened around the exact same same time to the minute, I would say, that those two birds came from the same direction and dive-bombed and landed in that tree. Um, this time, we, we aborted our missions, flew to a safe location, and then we came back and we, we commenced flying again. They had no interest in our, our drones, which was funny.
it's uh, it's it's awesome that you share this because it kind of shows you how a project like that can be complicated in ways that you might not have anticipated beforehand, right? Um, in the end, yeah. can you can you tell us like how many how many photos did it take to to get that uh, model? Because I know the Croton Dam uh, is is quite a significant structure. Yeah, it was an amazing structure to map and model as well. I was really excited about it. Um, like I said, I broke this pro project down into 37 micro projects. We used two different drones. Um, we did that mm -hmm. because the amount of time that we can fly and take pictures with each drone. Um, plus the fact that the reservoir or the dam itself is you know pretty high and we wanted to be up relatively high, which meant that we were, um, you know, I think we were like 250, 300 feet. Most of our operations are just slightly above the tree height, um, tree canopy. And this particular one, we had to be higher because we needed to get that higher relief to be able to see the dam or it would have been skewed um, and we would have had some distortion. Uh, but flying it in 37 projects made it so that I could manage that data. Uh, PIX4D limits you to 5,000 photographs um, unless you want to pay to upgrade. Um, so I did these micro projects and sometimes they were, you know, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 pictures per, per run. Um, and then I would merge them all into one project. Mm -hmm. And that's what, how I was able to get what, that's how I was able to do what is, <laughs> what we did out there with such tremendous accuracy is we broke it out, such a larger project down into smaller projects. Um, and the reason why we knew that this would work uh, was because of the, the structure of the dam. It's, it's rock. It's not a, a homogenous shape uh, or a color. Um, so by that, I mean, if I want to do a photogrammetry of, of a wall and it's the same color, if I don't have any really any texturization in that wall and it all looks the same, photogrammetry is not going to create that really well. Water does horrible. Like water is something you need to just basically remove. When I did this project this morning to show you guys, um, I haven't removed the, the water, but the water data, it, it's it's going to have different elevations. It'll you'll have some at the right surface, and then you'll have some that's below, and it's because the program just doesn't like it. It's getting all those reflections from different angles, and it's not going to stitch it together well. So this project, I think, with the thirty-seven. Um, micro projects i had close to like it was approaching fifty thousand photos I want to say about forty seven thousand photographs um a lot to handle um we did it not only on the alien where we, we put it on a we had a supercomputer that we were using and processing we we do not process on the cloud ourselves um mostly because we're doing critical infrastructure so they don't want that to be pushed out anywhere. We have to do it in-house. And we couldn't share it electronically, like via uh, whatever back then, because they're worried. It, you know, if, the, if someone wants to be nefarious with this information, that's a dam right, right above where Haya lives, um, that if someone were to do something catastrophic there, it would be really bad. Granted, at this point, Google Earth's got it in 3D as well. So, you know... I guess the reality is how much of a concern is that as a national security safety issue? I'm not certain, but Google Earth has it out there available as well. So listening to your, your workflow, sort of, um, I'm starting to wonder what kind of um, uh, changes or what kind of 
uh, improvements can we see in drones in the future that would make your job easier in terms of photogrammetry? If you had a wish list, what, what would be on that list? Well, right now my wish list would be, and I, I know I don't want to be plugging businesses, but um, this drone that's sitting right here, this is the Skydio drone, and I know I would love to talk about this and what I've been doing with it. Um, but my wish list would be that this had the same camera as the DJI. <laughs> it has six 4K cameras on it for it to do its navigational thing. Um, and then it has the sensor for me to do what I'm using for photogrammetry. But if this had a, a global shutter camera and a bigger sensor on it, this would be a game changer as well. But this right now is a game changer because of the enterprise package with scan uh, software. So if you become an enterprise partner with Skydio, like myself, um, and you pay for this drone and get it set up to do scans, uh, it's pretty amazing what you can do with it. It's, <laughs> it's definitely the game changer as far as critical infrastructure. Bridge inspections with this drone, there's no better way of doing it right now. Um, you know, you go to Skydio's website and you watch their promotional video about uh, Skydio Scan. It's amazing. Um, it is. This is this is the game changer. So uh, I have a feeling that the, the Phantom Four, if they come out with a Phantom Five, it better better be something like this, um, because that Phantom Four is a big seller to people like myself. Um, anybody that's into modeling or accent scene reconstruction is using that drone. This one's limited, by the way. You can't fly it in the dark. So I've been experimenting with uh, where are they here? different. We've been throwing these button lights on. Um, they're pretty bright, and they don't weigh much of anything. Um, indoor, outdoor, you just flip them on, and boom, they're just trying out to see if we can get it to work. Um, we've been thinking outside the box. You know, there's, uh, I think there's some... There's some other things up my sleeve that I've got coming in the future that we've been working on that I, I know, I don't think anybody else has really been working on yet um, that is going to change surveying. <laughs> mm. um, speaking of the Skydio 2, are autonomous drones like it important for 3D models and inspections? Yeah. So, I mean, even the Phantom 4 Pro, I'm using the um, third-party application to fly that for my modeling. So I set up with Pix4D's app and I'm flying using parameters that I can adjust and say, hey, I want this overlap. I want this this height above the ground. Um, I want this angle. And I want to slow down my, my drone a little bit, you know, because if it's windy out, whatever. Um, so, you know, they're all, it's, it's definitely gotten easier using the AIs or the, the programs that fly these drones. So I we aren't flying them at this point. We, we only take control in the event that we need to for an emergency. Um, on a rare occasion for inspection type work um, or uh, on some projects I have flown manually um, and I've even done some video grammatry which has taken video instead of using the photos and have used that data um, and then process that down. So um, again, you could fly the drone or you could use your cell phone, whatever, and process, uh, pick, take pictures from that. It's not as high resolution. 
uh, you tend to get a little bit more noise. Um, so what you get is you get a little bit more extra data. Um, but nonetheless, it's still usable for someone like myself. I can go in and, and um, bring that into a, a larger model. I know how to merge projects. So like, like we said before, if I need to come down below and, and get data beneath the trees or somewhere that I can't see because of the uh, canopy cover or tree cover or building cover, whatever you want is blocking it. If I can get down below with my cell phone or, or fly, this drone can fly within, uh, I think, like four inches with the uh, enterprise package. So that means four inches of the blade. So it, it gets it down. I can fly it right, right in through a house, right through a 36-inch door. Um, and in theory, I could now take this drone, if it's well lit inside a house or inside a building, I could do um, photogrammetry inside. So I could go from the exterior and then go inside to help with doing um, what's now a new, um, another source of revenue would be BIMs, building information models. So we're taking that data and then you could potentially sell that to real estate agents as opposed to using uh, Matterport or some other software. You can do a 3D photogrammetry of a, in, indoor of a house or, or anything. So you could have the exterior, show the whole property, uh, show the house, and then zoom right in and then go right in through the door and then show the whole interior of the home. Um, so, I think this is game changing. John, let me ask you this though, because the Skydio 2, uh, that drone was first introduced, uh, I think pretty much about two years ago now. Um, as a Part 107 certified drone pilot yourself, aren't you afraid that with these drones becoming more and more capable and more and more autonomous, that your your role as a pilot basically gets diminished? And then my other question here as well is, who's flying the drone? If something goes wrong, are you still the, the pilot in command, even though the drone might be, might be making decisions and then try to avoid something, but then accidentally flying to something else? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, that's made me nervous about using it for commercial operations. Um, mm -hmm. You and I have discussed this before at length um, about the fact that if I want to fly this drone from point A to point B, um, it decides if I'm trying to fly. If I am flying it manually with the remote control um, and I'm giving it the input and I say, go this direction, this way, at this trajectory or telemetry, the drone will decide whether or not that's safe. And if it decides it's not safe, it's going to change it's yeah. flight path. Um, it will it will effectively get to point B and it and what it deems safe. Um, that could cause a, a risk. So um, my experience with it has been that it's very good. Um, in I would say almost all of the applications that I've tested it in. When I was testing it before, I had it as a consumer drone. I acquired it from yeah. somebody else. Um, I didn't buy it directly from Skydio, and I didn't have the enterprise package at the time. So to operate it for commercial applications at that point in time, it really wasn't unlocked. Um, yeah. With the enterprise package, it's unlocked that you can fly much closer. They call it close proximity flight. Um, it, it's allowing some amazing results by that. And it, my experience with it when I had it as a consumer drone was, one time it got confused following somebody in, in, in an entertainment setting where, you know, my son was riding his bicycle and 
it was following him and it was doing a fantastic job of following him and avoiding all of the obstacles around us. I was not flying that drone. I had yeah. set it much like you do on a DJI. I set it, locked it onto my son. It recognized him and it tracked him and moved and flew around and kept him at, at the same distance. Now what happened in that particular day was my son stopped and hesitated. And now the whole entire time the drone was flying from behind him and a little bit to his left. So it was over his left shoulder, um, about 20 feet behind him, and about 10, 12 feet off the ground. Most of the time, occasionally go up a little bit, but not much below that. And I felt really safe watching it fly around him. Um, I had played with it before I did, tracked it on him. Um, so I wouldn't have done it if I didn't feel that it was safe. And at the time, it was touted as uncrashable. Um, so... But what happened is when he stopped, he hesitated, he turned and looked at the drone, and in doing so, he then changed his actual direction of his bicycle by changing his steering wheel and kicking off and starting to push. Now the drone hesitates for a second because he started his movement, and once he started his movement, now the drone wanted to be in that exact same position right over his left shoulder where it was before, and to get there, it had to quickly maneuver around and get to that position. And in doing so, it clipped the branch that was uh, about the size of a, a less than a quarter of an inch in size. Not very big at all, but it was enough to clip it, and it sent it to the ground. Um, scared snot out of me. Um, and I said, I, I don't think that that's safe to fly in that setting. You know, I'm watching these videos of people online flying it through the trees, and I'm like, this is in a wide open in my driveway at my parents' place. Um, it, it just happened when it tried to get around to stay in that position, it cut over towards the edge of the tree line at the edge of the road. And it just caught one little branch. It just didn't see it. Um, oh, it's, I do it's, know it's with very, the enterprise. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. No, I was going to say it's very early days, right? I mean, you see it with Tesla, with self-driving cars, and you see it yeah. with the drones as well. I mean, the been... future is, is towards uh, autonomy for sure, but it'd be interesting to get, let's say, a legal expert, an insurance expert, and maybe somebody from one of those drone companies on the show and talk about, okay, so if something goes wrong, who's to blame? Because it, I mean, right. we saw with Billy Kyle, his uh, Skydio just nose-dived into Go a lake. right into uh, the pond, yeah. Yeah, That's I mean, it. weird stuff and can still happen, and who is... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No. So um, I do know that they have done, they've pushed out a lot of new software upgrades to that. Um, they yeah. have, they have made the enterprise system. What you get with that is not the same as what you get in the consumer drone. Um, yeah. So it's much tighter. It can fly much closer. It does slow the drone. That's the other thing. It does slow the drone down a lot when you're in those modes. Um, but it, it's, it's, opening up some new ideas and thoughts in my head and saying, Hey, for close proximity flights, um, if we can light, if we can put some lights on that thing and put it inside some enclosed structures, can we start to do critical infrastructure inspections? Um, you know, flying through subway stations, you know, New York city, um, flying through tunnels, um, flying through mine shafts, uh, maybe flying through, um, storm systems. So this is kind of where I'm going with it in the future is that, you know, the, the limiting factor is lighting in those situations if you're going to use photogrammetry. Um, and then how are you going to get your cameras or sensors into that uh, structure in a safe way? Drones are pretty safe. So, um, and they're proving to be 
more and more intelligent and more and more capable of doing things that we didn't think were possible. So um, you are pretty close to New York City. And speaking of drones, the laws there, as we all know, are very, very strict. How does this impact your work or your workflow? So I'm actually, I'm five hours, five and a half hours north of New York City myself. So I'm up in the Adirondacks. Um, my limiting factor is um, protected state lands, being able to take off, knowing where, where I kind of can't fly. Um, and, you know, that's, that's obviously very important. Um, I also keep with me at all points in time when I am flying a little packet for law enforcement. Should law enforcement show up and ask me questions while I'm operating the drone? I, I usually am very polite and just say, hey, give me a few minutes. I'm in the middle of an operation. As soon as I'm done I, and I land the drone, I'll communicate with you. Um, but right there, and I, I'll just point, I'll be like, right there in that black bag, there's a little packet for you. If you open that up, they'll have some information for you to at least, you know, if you're willing to entertain that until I'm done. Um, I haven't really had major issues the last couple of years. Um, I, I've gotten a little savvy recently. I bought a big black van that looks like an FBI van. So that's my mobile command center. And when we're doing our drone stuff and I'm working out of that with a, um, a vest on and a hard hat and I look official and I'm, you know, it says FAA certified drone pilot, do not disturb on my back. Um, and I'll be honest, since I got that van, not one single law enforcement has pulled up to ask me what I'm doing while flying a drone. Uh, and before, <laughs> if I was operating out of my pickup truck, I saw my old pickup yeah. truck. I had a rooftop tent on it. Um, there usually would be two or three kayaks sticking out of the back of my truck. That did not um, look like FBI. <laughs> yeah, and it, 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 it was undoubtedly almost every time I got the drone out, I was going to be spending 15 minutes or more talking with the police uh, or security or whomever might be coming out to investigate what am I doing out there. Um, and, you know, explaining I'm a commercial drone pilot, I'm a licensed land surveyor. We're doing a survey map. It, we're not taking video or pictures of people's houses or anything. We're doing this for a, a mapping or a modeling mission uh, or critical infrastructure or whatever we're doing in inspection. Uh, it depends on the project. So uh, it's it's become actually a commodity to have the big van and, and I'm able to work out of it. It's a mobile command center. I have an office, TV, and, you know, internet in there. It's just, it's, it's like a workstation. So it gives me that... Um, peace of mind that people aren't really going to bother me. I look really official now. <laughs> so we, uh, we always have the same question at the very end of the show and we're getting there because we've been talking for a while, which has been very enlightening. Uh, what is your favorite drone to fly? My favorite drone to fly would probably be. I, I've just enjoyed the Phantom floor pro. Um, it's been a, a fantastic, fun drone to fly. I do fly it a lot manually. Um, I, I spend a lot of time out there in the kayaks. And so me and my friends will take that drone out uh, and I have fun with it. So it's, it's a fantastic, reliable uh, bird and produces amazing video or, or pictures. They're stunning, in fact. Um, I'm starting to play more and more with that drone. Um, with some adventure stuff, but it's, you know, I, I bought that with the business money and uh, I own a Phantom 4 Pro. 
So if I crash a Phantom 4 Pro, it's not the end of the world if I was playing in the river or put it into a waterfall like a fool like some of my friends have done. Um, but no, I, the, I enjoy the Phantom 4 Pro. Uh, the hat I have on is the Newbie drone. The, these are those little micro drones with the wearing the headset, the goggles. Uh, first person video, little racers. That we, we fly through the house here. Um, I've got a little pass-through window right next to me. And my boys and I have a good time trying to zip it through the living room and through that window and try not to crash it. Um, that's not the same as playing one of these with GPS lock. When you want to stop, you just stop. And, you know, you're not really, I guess, with the Phantom 4s or whatever, you're not really piloting them if you got them on GPS mode, which I know Paul Aiken would say all the time. Oh, he's Paul's an amazing pilot. I've seen him fly in person many times. Uh, and, yeah. I'm definitely not there, but playing with these newbie drones are, are, are fun, uh, and you could get two or three of them, and, and even if you crash it in your own head, it doesn't hurt, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, they're, they're fun. That's awesome. Joan, I want to, I want to thank you for, for sharing all your experience and the things you've learned along the way, incorporating drones into a land surveying work. Uh, I think it was really awesome and, and super interesting. Sure. Um, for everybody listening or watching this show, uh, be sure to check out uh, John's website, NewYorkDroneSurvey.com, where you can uh, learn more about him and his company. Uh, if you enjoyed the Pixel Drone Show, please be sure to like and subscribe and share it with your friends and family. It helps us a great deal to, to grow our audience. Uh, this uh, episode airs on Tuesday and every future episode, of course, uh, airs on Tuesday morning as well. So please uh, stay tuned and we'll be back uh, next week with another episode. Thank you, guys. Excellent. Thank you.